0: We could turn in the Word of God this morning, beloved, to again the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians and the third chapter. First Thessalonians, chapter 3. As we continue our study through this epistle. Coming close to the the end of chapter three, which there will be a shift when we come to chapter Four as the apostle begins to bring some very direct application to the hearts of the people of God. A lot of what we 've been dealing with really relates to the history of the work and the context in which the work was established, and some of the the battles that were endured, and even the context in which this letter was written, how the Paul Paul so desired to return to them, but was unable to do so, and then sent Timothy, who came back with a, an encouraging report, and in response to that, then Paul writes this letter. So, in spite of that, there's been much for us to learn, and there will yet be things for us to learn. So with this chapter open before us, we'll read from the first verse and read through to the end of the chapter, it's 13 verses. So let us hear the living Word of God, and may we hear it with profit, and may the Lord give us much light and help in His Word today. He knows the need of your heart, beloved. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast, in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we might see your face, and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. Amen. Let us still our hearts momentarily in prayer. Once again, beloved, opening our hearts to hear from the Lord. Father, we are thankful for encouragement already received from the proceedings of our worship this morning. We love to join our voices with the saints of God to sing the songs of Zion and to think much upon our Lord Jesus and what He has done for us and what He yet does for His people and indeed what He will yet do for us. We pray as the Word is before us that Thou wilt give the help that we need. We ask for, above everything else, The outpouring of thy spirit. If every man and woman, boy and girl could testify today that the Spirit of God came and gave that word in season, it would be sufficient for us. We will know that the Lord has graciously met our need. So, Father, do this. We are thy people. We have no strength, no power without thee. So, I pray for the congregation that as we read on that occasion when Peter was before the household of Cornelius, that the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word. May it do so here today. Come by thy Spirit, fill me with the Holy Ghost, and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus taught us, beloved, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, That the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Never has there existed anyone that takes greater delight in bestowing life like the Lord Jesus. No one rejoices and delights in bestowing life like he does. It is his great delight. If we need any evidence of that, any proof of it, we need look no further than to the cross itself. The condescension of the Son of God coming here. Why? To give life. But also, we may say, never has there existed anyone that takes greater delight in destroying life than the devil. He delights in destruction, in tearing apart the souls of men. And just as in the case of Job, Satan wanted and so desired to wreak havoc upon the believers in Thessalonica and to bring them to a point where they might forsake their profession of faith and their intended desire to follow on as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had taken up their cross and intended to follow Him. But Satan came in and with all of his warfare and all of his effort endeavored to destroy them, as he always does. It's not unique to them. It's always his activity. Two weeks ago, we saw the pastoral care that Paul exhibits here for a persecuted church in the opening few verses. This care is seen where you see this, this no longer forbear. He, he couldn't stay, uh, remain in this position of not knowing how they were getting on. And so he sends Timotheus to see how they were getting on. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, verse 3 says. And then last Lord's Day we considered the pastoral joy for a faithful church because when the report came back, well, it was good news. They were going on well according to Timothy's report and Paul could not have desired anything more in terms of their progress as what was reported from Timothy. At least in large part there was much to rejoice in. We considered the enemy of faithfulness there in verse 5 where you have this lest by any means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. There's, there's an enemy that tries to prevent men and women who come to faith in Christ from being faithful. The whole undergirding verse that we mentioned to you last week is there in verse 8. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. And, and this is the goal. This is the desire to see believers stand fast. And yet there's this tempter that Paul was only too well acquainted with that would seek to tempt them and draw them away. So there's an enemy of faithfulness. But there's also then the evidence of faithfulness in verse 6. Because when Timotheus came, he brought good tidings of your faith and charity. I'll not go over how we looked at those two terms and how they imbibe all the heart of the gospel. But this is the report. This this general overview is that they are continuing on. Good tidings. Great joy. There's this sense of of, of, of what God is doing in their midst. And Timothy is rejoicing, and Paul is as well. And then there was the effect of faithfulness. First, in verse 7, it relieves. It gave relief to Paul whenever he saw their faithfulness and heard about it. We were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. It brought comfort. It brought relief, in other words. When I was worried and concerned, thankfully, it was... Without need. It was was without cause. God had so worked and given help that there was no need for me to worry. You were continuing on. So there's relief there. But there's also revival as well. It revives. It not only relieves, but it revives. Verse 8, for now we live. You gave life to us. With the implication that, that this was sucking the very life out of Paul. And you know what worry does. You've been there. You've been in that state and condition of anxiety and concern. And it may be for things that are practical, or it may be for things that are spiritual. It may relate to yourself, or it may relate to those that you love and care about. But you know the feeling of anxiety and worry and concern. And Paul was concerned, and it was, as I say, sucking the very life out of him. And he says, now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, if you continue on, as is reported, it gives life to me. And great joy. I made a few comments in relation to verse, verses 9 and 10 last Lord's Day. I really didn't deal with the verses at all. So we're returning to these verses and also uh, probably just deal with those. We'll maybe not move much into verse 11, but we'll, we'll look at these, verse, these verses, verses 9 and 10, and see what the Lord would have for us as we develop them a little more. I felt that I didn't do them justice, let's just put it that way. And sometimes when you feel like you're robbing people of, of what you're meant to do, which is expound the Word. Well, you come back to it and you realize, well, I didn't really expound it the way I should. not doing the work that I need to in the text, so we come back to it. And so, this will really overlap with the next message that we'll have because it's all really in context of what we have here, which is pastoral praying for an infant church. Pastoral praying for an infant church. And you will note three things that we will see this morning. First, the warmth in his praying and then the worship in his praying, and then the work in his praying. So, let's look at verse 9, where we left off at the end of verse 8, really. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? It's a little awkward in terms of its translation here. And part of the reason for that is with the repetition of the word joy and not realizing that one is a noun and one is a verb. And sometimes if you don't see that initially yourself, then you, you don't get the full clarity of what is going on here. But, but Paul's essentially underlining that the prayer he goes on to pray, and you see in verse 10 that he's night and day praying exceedingly to see their face. We'll get to that. And he goes on to offer a prayer in verses 11 through 13. But preceding all of that, Proceeding all of that is the warmth of the prayer, which is seen in the joy that permeates the praying. When Paul heard the report, when it, Timothy came to him and said, here's how they're getting on, as I said last week, he is filled with joy. He is not stoic. He's not just sitting there and saying, that's good, I'm glad about that, and then carries on. He actually causes him to have his heart filled with joy. Now beloved, I've said this before, I say it again. Joy is expressive. It is expressive. If there's reason and cause for joy, it ought to be seen. It ought to be manifest. The fact that you're made in the image of God and you're capable, unlike many creatures in this world, you're capable of manifesting that joy on your very countenance is an indication that it ought to be so, that we do not have the capability, the the, the complexity of our facial expressions and our, our communication and so on. And even the way we can change the tone of our voice and someone can tell even by listening on a telephone. When you talk to someone that they're rejoicing, they're joyful, or they're not. You can tell these things. Such is the spectrum of emotion that we can show. God made us that way. And He made us that way so that when we have cause, rightful cause to rejoice, it would be manifest. As the people of God, we have the right to rejoice. And while there are occasions where we are brought to experiences of sorrow and grief, and that is true, and and Paul exhibits that here in in the fact that he was concerned about the church, all of that is human and real, and is the the sense of of that that connection with them and that fatherly oversight for them and their well-being, that being drawn out of a soul, that worry, that, that rightful concern that he had that wasn't sinful, it wasn't a wrong kind of feeling to have. He, he legitimately was concerned about their welfare. That is right. I mean, if, if again, put it in the context of something that's more understood by many of us. A parent is not sinning when they have a, a sense of concern for the well-being of their children. Now, it can go into sin, It can push beyond the boundaries of what we can legitimately feel and experience and go into sin where we aren't really trusting the Lord and it's an expression of unbelief. But feeling concern is something that, in fact, it's just coming to mind. I think maybe to back this up with Scripture, I'm going to go back to John 13 and hope I can find a verse there that, that shows something of this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I'm not sure. Verse 21 of John 13. What does he say on this occasion? When Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit. That's the same word that he uses later on in chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. So he says to his disciples, Don't you be troubled. Don't you be anxious. Don't you be worried. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. But on the flip side, he has it within his own soul. Verse 21, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Now, was that sin? Of course not. This was legitimate concern about what was going on in this particular scenario where he knows there's going to be the betrayal that's about to take place. And he had legitimate concern. His humanity is drawn out in concern over this matter that Judas is about to seal his eternity by betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. For what? 30 pieces of silver. And there's this troubling in his soul. At the same time, he exhorts his people, don't. Be troubled. You believe in God. Don't be worried because I'm going away. And that's the sense of it. They're concerned because he said he's going away. And they're all worried about this. And he said, look, you don't have to be troubled about this. And he goes on to explain why I'm going to send a comforter. The Holy Ghost will come. So there is legitimate cause for concern. There are times where we ought to feel concern for souls, for those that we care about, for those that are under our care. But at the same time... When we have reason to rejoice, we ought to rejoice. And that is what we're underlining here. As Paul kind of leads into prayer, it is joy that is the warmth of that prayer. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? He hears the report and he rejoices. Now, We should look for opportunities for this, because as I don't need to tell you, you don't need to look for misery. It will find you. It will find you every day in its various forms, and for good reason. As the Shorter Catechism tells us in its answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And that's all around us, a state, a state of sin and misery. So you don't have to look for misery. You don't have to try and find it. It will find you. It's all around you. All sorts of causes for misery and sorrow in this life. But, but, with the gospel, there are reasons for genuine, real, meaningful joy. I'm not sure the world understands joy at all. I really don't. There are aspects that they enter into by means of them being made in the image of God. But there's no real meaningful foundation for joy without the gospel. It is the understanding that my fundamental need has been met in Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you do not grasp that the greatest need you have is not the list of things you want to attain, not a list of of desires, not a, a bucket list of various things you want to experience in life. The greatest need you have is the forgiveness of your sins. And for those that are here this morning that have experienced that, they grasp the fact, fundamentally, my greatest need has been met. And it's from that foundation that they can experience and express genuine joy. They know it. They know before a holy God that they have been rightly related to Him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. They know that on the cross... Everything was met where Christ declares it is finished. And it was finished on their behalf. And they grasp within their souls that I have no greater need than this. And that need has been met. Praise the Lord. When you have that, there's always reason for joy. Now, as I say, we still live in this world that is cursed by the fall. The experience of sin and misery is still very much evident in the world. And so that at times takes our concern and causes us legitimate reason for worry. But the gospel brings joy. And this is what Paul is essentially rejoicing in because it's the success of the gospel, isn't it? And why is he rejoicing? What thanks can we render to God again for you? It's like the psalm we were singing, Psalm 116. The verse is verse 12 Where the psalmist says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? What can I return to Him for all the benefits that have been experienced by me in His mercy? And Paul is saying something very similar. What thanks can we render to God for you? In other words, for what has been done in your life, for what is being accomplished there in your lives. For all the joy wherewith we joy, for your sakes, before God, night and day, and so on. So, this joy is, is, is really expressive here as he's leading into prayer. And there are a couple of things we learn from this. First of all, we want to find joy in others because that's essentially what Paul is doing. He is rejoicing in others. Not himself. It's not himself. He's rejoicing in them. He sees them making progress, he sees them going on with God, he hears the report. That they're continuing on in the faith, and he's rejoicing in them. Now that that's a principle that we need to imbibe, that is the ability and the privilege indeed of rejoicing in the lives of others. Turn with me for a moment to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians two, and you'll see Paul exhibit the same attitude there toward this church, Second Corinthians chapter seven. There are a number of verses here that express joy. I'm not going to read through the entire portion, but I'll just select the verses and highlight them for you. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4. And you can see his love for them in verse 3. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. You see the way his whole life is knit up into the church. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And he's rejoicing in what is going on in the church. Verse 7, not by I'm talking about Titus here. And uh, comfort, rejoicing in his. what well, he's hearing about the church. And not by His coming only, but by the consolation wherewith He was comforted in you when He told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward Me, so that I rejoiced the more. Verse 9, now I rejoice. Not that ye were made sorry, but ye, that ye sorrowed to repentance. This is because of His first letter that He wrote to them. And He sees He rejoices because it had the intended effect. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us and nothing. Then verse 13, therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. So now he's rejoicing because of their impact upon Titus. Titus was refreshed. He was encouraged and Paul's rejoicing in this. All of his joy here relates to, is connected with, is tied into the church and what's going on with others. When he writes to those at Philippi, Philippians 4.1, he says something very similar to what he says to those at Thessalonica, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. My joy, you bring joy. John writes in 2 John, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Now, beloved, the whole point here in giving these verses to you is to see that we are to find joy in others. It gives us permission. Indeed, it exhorts us to find joy in others, to look at their lives and see their progress, see how they're going on, and rejoice. You say, well, what's the point? Why, Why are you underlining that? Because I feel at times... We are so selfish, if I can use that word, I I think it's appropriate. We are so bound up in ourselves that we can only find joy when what we want for ourselves is being fulfilled. Our desires are being met. Our longings are coming to pass. That's the old nature rising up right there. A sense of entitlement. And we, we struggle at times to genuinely rejoice in what God is doing in the lives of other people. Or to put it another way, to genuinely rejoice in what God may be doing in another church, through another work that's not related to us, through another person. Think of it in terms, you're a businessman, someone else is a businessman within the Christian community, they're doing better than than you, and you struggle to rejoice because you're so, you're so desirous that it would be you But that's the wrong spirit. You should rejoice in their success. Thank the Lord and pray that it will not go to their heads and be their ruination. Rejoicing in others. Why should we rejoice in others? Well, there are many reasons. But fundamentally, it is because this is Christ-like. I love Luke chapter 15, like many of you. It's in Luke 15 that we have the parable, really a three-fold parable, where the Lord reveals His love and mercy towards sinners. And in the first one, the first kind of aspect of that, that He reveals where He deals with the 99 sheep that were there and the one that's lost. And He goes out and He finds that lost sheep. I, I love it. I love, I love the imagery. I love it because it reflects that... Not just the love the Lord has for His people and His willingness to set aside everything else to go after those that are perishing. But the response when He finds it, it's not out of a sense of mere duty. It's not just, I had a job to do, I went and did it, gripped my teeth, got the job done, came home and then flunked down on the the couch and, and kind of, you know, that's it, my work's done. No, that's not the image we have at all. He gathers, He finds that lost sheep Puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. So when he actually finds the sheep, he's rejoicing there. No one else is around. It's just him and this lost sheep. He's rejoicing then. And he brings it home and he calls everyone else, Rejoice with me! Rejoice with me! For I have found my sheep which was lost. The Lord delights. He delights in the accomplishment of His work. And in the benefit of salvation as is experienced by each one of his people. He is not detached from it. He's not just kind of cut off. And as I said the word earlier, stoic about it. He he is rejoicing. He expresses it. And he encourages everyone else to enter into that joy. Rejoice with me in the success of the gospel. In the furtherance of the glory of my name and my work. Do you find joy in other people? Do you? Do you have eyes to see the hand of God and the lives of others to favor them and delight in it? It's an awful thing to be enslaved by self-centeredness. But not only do we want to find joy in others, we want to cause joy in others. On the flip side, there's, there's, we want to cause joy in others. From the first perspective, it is Paul, he is finding joy in the church. He is seeing it, and he's rejoicing. But on the other side, the church are causing joy, aren't they? They They're causing joy to fill the heart of the apostle. Now, that's not their main motivation. They're not enduring persecution because they're afraid of what Paul might think. I mean, they are living in light of the presence of the Lord. They're thinking of Him. That's their main goal, their main motivation. They, They love the Lord who died for them. But there is this cause. They they, they become a cause for joy in others. And this is another example for us that we may learn from. We may learn from those that Paul is addressing. Now, when we look at ourselves, there's not much cause for joy. I'm assuming you feel like I feel about myself. There's, There's not many reasons for joy. And yet, what should encourage our hearts, again, if we just scrape away everything else and get to the heart of the Gospel, that I realize that the one that matters, the Lord Himself, finds a sense of joy in me because of what Christ has done. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, You remember the words in Matthew 3, verse 17. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father looked at the Son, and He had every reason to rejoice in every aspect of His life. It found he found in him that which was well-pleasing to him. Now, now this, is, this is the divine eye who is of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. And there's no tolerance at all, really, when he's looking at it judicially. But he looks and he declares from heaven upon his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. Some of the modern translations say "with whom I am well pleased," and to a degree that is true, but it misses something of the of the the sense of union that is in the way the authorized version puts it: "In whom I am well pleased," not just with whom I'm not just pleased with him; I'm pleased in him. The very the very essence of his being, I find pleasure there. And beloved, that's wonderful when you draw out the application that is worked out in the epistles of Paul particularly, the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. And Paul found so much upon that. Everything really essentially kind of flows out of the fact that the people of God are in union with Jesus Christ. And the reason we will stand before Him in judgment day and be acquitted of all of our sins is because we are in Him. And we are found by imputation of His work to us. We are well-pleasing in the sight of of God, This is the amazing aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is imputed to those who believe that they receive by faith alone the merit of the Son of God. It's not just the washing away of sin. It's not just the dealing with our unrighteousness. It is a sense of a completeness that as the Son pleases the Father, so we are found well pleasing in the sight of the Father by our union with Him. The Son was a cause for joy to the Father. And as He is our example, and we are to walk even so as He walked, so we are to be a cause of joy. A cause of joy. I was talking last evening with the youth that were there, really, about the fifth commandment. I am just very much burdened about that for a number of reasons. And even the topic I've been assigned for camp really relates around that commandment. So my mind has been upon it a lot over recent weeks. And one of, the, one of the reasons for the fifth commandment is, is that we are a cause for, for joy to our superiors. Or, or on the flip side, even to our inferiors as well as we lead and we guide. A cause for joy. A sense of of honor of their persons. And we lift them up by the way we live in such a way that we bring joy to their hearts rather than grief. Turn over just for a minute. I wasn't going to mention this, but Hebrews chapter 12. Just to go over there for a second. Hebrews 12. We are the people of God. We couldn't be any more loved than we are. There's nothing more we can do to earn the, the essential love of God toward us. We are His people. In Hebrews chapter 12, you will see that though the Lord loves us dearly, yet He does not ignore the waywardness of His children. And so we are told, from verse 5, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. The great sin of forgetting. Don't forget. Do not forget. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? The whole purpose of chastening is to reflect his love and to correct us when we are in error. In other words, he sees when we are not well-pleasing in this sense of our outward conduct and life legally. Legally. Don't misunderstand. Legally, you're in Christ. Legally, you're justified. Legally, you could not be any more righteous in the sight of God. But in the outworking of your life, such as it is decreed by the living God, He wants all of His children to manifest a life that becomes more and more well-pleasing to Him. And so when we are in error because He loves us, He chastens us. Corrects us to bring us back into the way. Now I could address boys and girls here this morning, <laughs> looking at my own girls, looking at other children here, and ask yourself the question, do I, do I bring joy to my parents? Am I a cause of joy to my parents? Or am I a cause for grief? The Lord Jesus lived as He was a cause of joy. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is the pattern for us. And we are to please the Father. But not just our Heavenly Father. That's the ultimate authority. We live as with an eye to Him. But inevitably, as we live with an eye to Him, if we are truly living as we ought, we will also be a joy. those that have legitimate concern for us as Paul would have for this church. He's legitimately concerned because he's connected to them. He feels responsibility for them. And so when they're doing well, he rejoices. They are a cause for joy. If the report had come back from Timothy that they're not doing well, it would have been a source of grief. And so it is with our children when they live with an eye to please the Lord. And we see that and it brings us then what? It brings joy when they rebel, it brings grief. But it's the same for us all. In our workplaces, in our homes, in our church. So John would write in Third John 1 verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy. Come on, John. You have to have something that's a greater joy. Does the cross not bring you more joy? Well, he might say, of course the cross brings me joy. But what I'm rejoicing in is the product of the cross. It's interconnected with the cross. The cross does what? It changes lives. And how does it change lives? It causes those that are in paths darkness, the broad road that leads to destruction it transforms them, puts them on a narrow way that leads to life and they follow truth and the paths of righteousness for the Lord's name's sake and when I see that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in that truth nothing else no other news brings me greater joy than to hear that well that's how Paul was. He burst with joy. The warmth of the prayer that we will get into is flowing out of this sense of joy. What thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy. In fact, the construction of this, when you look at it in the original, is kind of odd, but it's just this multiplication of a sense of joy. That's all you need to know, that he is just piling on this sense of joy. And rejoicing, perhaps, if you put the second word, if you change it to rejoicing, it might emphasize the sense of it being that verb, that rejoicing for your sex before our God. Because of you, before God, I am rejoicing. They were a cause of joy for Him. So, we are to find joy in others. We are to be a cause of joy for others. You'll see this also, even in church life. I should have probably mentioned it, but I'll mention it again Now, in Hebrews 13, because it all ties into Hebrews 12, I'll read it to you, Hebrews 13, verse 17. This is relating to the church, but it applies in every context where we have a voice of authority. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Okay, so we understand that. Many have heard that before. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Obey and submit that they may carry out their duty with joy. In other words, that you are a cause for joy and not a cause for grief. And that's what I've been seeking to highlight to you, that whenever you're dealing with those that are your concern, your responsibility, every parent understands it, every business owner understands it, Anyone who has a position of management, people below you that you're responsible for, that you have to make sure they have, carry out their duties and so on, when they don't carry out their duties, when they fail to do what they're asked to do, when that happens, it brings grief. You take no delight in it. It's sorrow. You don't want to see that. You want to see them live in such a way so you can conduct your position of authority, Under God with joy and not with grief. And it's a sense of self preservation, for that is unprofitable for you. It's not going to be profitable for you if those over you are doing their job with grief. Again, children, you make mom and dad mad, (laughs) you drive them to the end of their tether, it's not going to be profitable for you. It will not. It will bring sorrow to you. So, we see the warmth in his praying. Joy is just filling the apostle's heart. Secondly, the worship in his praying. The worship. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Where's the worship? Well, the worship is seen in the thanksgiving that saturates his praying. What thanks can we render? That's worship. If there's something that makes us joyful, we ought to be particularly thankful. Something brings us joy. It shouldn't just be self contained, it should be expressed toward God, shouldn't it? Think of the ten lepers. Remember the ten lepers? Go to Luke chapter 17. Refresh your memory. Luke chapter 17. We read this at times and just marvel at what's wrong with these people. But they reflect ourselves so often. Luke 17, verse 12. And as he, that's Jesus, entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that, as they went, they were cleansed. Everything's going well so far. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a smart. One. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. What a sad record. What a sad record. These men are lepers. They have no hope. There's no medication. There's no help from man. I don't know how long they were lepers for, but they were long enough so that they had congregated because they were the only friends that they could have. Everyone else would stay away from them, but these ten lepers are all together. So I'm, I'm assuming from that this, is, this has gone on for some period of time for some of them. And the only people they can fellowship or friend, have friendship with are themselves. No one else wants anything to do with them. And Jesus comes by, gives them the, the greatest desire they could ever wish for. Every morning they would wake up and wonder, why have I got this leprosy? And oh, God deliver us from it. But every day would roll around and it would continue on. No relief. The Lord speaks the word. And they're cleansed. And one sees that he's healed, turns back, and he gives thanks. You see? There was joy that entered He saw the leprosy gone. He saw the healing. And He turned to give thanks. That was the right response. When there is cause for joy, thanksgiving must flow from it. What wretches we are when the Lord gives us cause for joy and we are not thankful. Again, our whole salvation is is the reason for us to ever have cause for thanksgiving. I don't have time to go through all the Scriptures with you and show how much emphasis is placed upon thanksgiving in relation to prayer. But Paul never allows us to ever get to a place where we can pray without thanksgiving. So many of the exhortations relate that. It is to be with thanksgiving. We'll read some of them in just a moment. But even look look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And you see how much of an emphasis Paul puts upon thankfulness. Colossians 3, verse 15. Now, sometimes as a preacher, you repeat yourself. And the more astute and careful listeners will wonder, why is he repeating himself? But what they forget is that many people don't actually listen as well, and they have no idea you've repeated yourself. But nothing's new. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. Be ye thankful. Okay, Paul. Go down to verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now hang on, Paul. You just said, be thankful. He just, but he repeats it. He puts emphasis. He elaborates a little more. But essentially, it's a repetition of the same exhortation given at the end of verse 15. Be thankful. Be thankful. Giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Be thankful. Be thankful. Paul exhorts upon the church continued thanksgiving. Now, again, where we're looking... You will see, for what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy were with me, joy for your sakes before God. He is, not, he is not taking credit for their steadfastness. It is what thanks we can render to God. It is to God. The thanks is to God. And Paul can take no credit for this. It's not like he would say to himself, Well, I must have done a tremendous job grinding them in those first few weeks that I was there. Didn't I do a mighty discipleship work with them so that they would continue on? I was worried, but I must have done a great job. None of that. It's God. God has kept them. God has preserved them. And He is therefore giving thanks to God. What thanks can we render to God? It is all, it all goes back to Him. Psalm 115 verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Thirdly, the work in his praying. The work in his praying. We will elaborate more on this next time, but you will see in verse 10, night and day praying exceedingly we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith just dealing with this aspect of night and day praying exceedingly here is the work the work is seen in the intercession that dominates his praying Paul believed in the efficacy of prayer everywhere he notes the fact that he's praying or he exhorts the church to pray or expresses thanks to them for their prayers Romans 1.9, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always in your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.16, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Colossians one three we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. Philemon one verse four I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. Galatians four nineteen my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Travailing in birth, the kind of prayer that agonizes because well this was a problematic area the churches here aren't going on the way they ought. And he marvels that they are so soon turned away from the gospel. And so he is travailing in birth. The agony of that kind of birth pains. Till Christ be formed in you. Or as he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3, Without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Praying. Not because he had nothing better to do with his time. Praying because he believed in the efficacy of prayer. And so he says, night and day, praying exceedingly. Night and day, praying exceedingly. One man writes of Paul, quote, he had such a sense that everything must come from above and such a faith that it would come in answer to prayer that prayer was neither a duty nor a burden but the natural turning of the heart to the only place whence it could possibly obtain what it sought for others. In other words, there was no plan B. If I'm going to see worked out in the hearts of these people that I care about what I desire for them, I must turn to God and pray for it. Now, every last one of us needs to keep that in mind because we have the tendency, I include myself very much in this, we have the tendency Practically speaking, in terms of analyzing our lives, we put much more weight upon our doing. We give most of our time to our doing. We wonder about what we can do. What should I do? How can I help? And it all has its place. Don't get me wrong. But I think there is an unbalanced perspective that often is in our hearts. And this, Satan loves it. He loves it. He loves it if we think to ourselves, we can do something good here if we completely forget the fact that we must, must, must pray. There were times when Paul's prayers were not answered. At least not in the way he would long for. It wasn't like he had some special access into the presence of God that's not common to all of us. He prayed for his countrymen, didn't he? Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I'm quite sure Paul would analyze what occurred in his lifetime and say, well, that prayer did not get answered in the way I so long for. but he prayed anyway. And here he says, night and day, praying exceedingly. The term here, again, interesting, Paul sometimes almost seemed to make up words, kind of compound words where he will add in another term to strengthen the sense of the term and that's what he does here. And the idea is of, of, of the fact that there's something going on beyond all measure and it's kind of repeated. I, I it's really hard to express in English, but you can see it in the original. It's translated, the same word is used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul writes there, "...now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think." And I thought about those two verses, and he uses it in one other place, but here he uses these terms in relation to prayer, both, both times. Night and day, praying exceedingly, and then reflecting how he viewed prayer, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. And I thought about that. Doesn't that just make sense? If undergirding Paul's perspective of prayer is the idea found in Ephesians 3, verse 20, that he is looking to God that is able to do beyond measure what we can ask or think. He is coming to God who is able to exceed everything beyond far, far beyond. What he could even begin to imagine, never mind pray for. If he comes to a God, he does that. Is it not right then that he would night and day pray beyond measure? That in his activity of prayer, it goes beyond praying exceedingly, beyond stretching out prayer, continuing in this effort of prayer, keeping on praying because he had a conviction. That God was able to do exceeding abundantly above what He could ask or think. I thought, "Wow, makes perfect sense. I mean, if you really believe Ephesians 3:20, then you pray like this. You do. <laughs> because you realize that you're coming to the source of all power. Why do I waste my time exercising myself in all sorts of areas where I'm trying to exert my power when I full well know my own limitations? Paul is so engulfed with a sense of the immensity of his God and the availability of his power as it is given to us in Christ. He is so consumed with that conviction that night and day praying exceedingly. And what's he praying for? We'll get to this next time, but he's essentially praying against the devil, isn't he? Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face. Why is he praying that? Well, because Satan had hindered him before. Chapter 2, verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once again, but Satan hindered us. So he's praying against the activity of the devil. The devil does not want Paul to get back there. The devil's trying to prevent Paul from getting there. And Paul comes before the one who can do exceeding abundantly and prays night and day exceedingly beyond measure that God would give his heart's desire that he might see their face. Yes, Paul believed in prayer. He believed in the prayer of God's people. Second Corinthians one eleven, He also helping together by prayer for us. You help by your prayers. And so, many exhortations to prayer I will not go over for time is gone. You know, as I thought about all of this, Paul loved to be in the company of the Lord's people. He loved to be where they are. He wanted to be where they were. You read his letters, often many of them will will show this expression of prayer like this. He wants to be praying that God would get them where they are, give them opportunity to be with them. And I fear that some of the Lord's people don't really enjoy the company and presence of the Lord's people as much as they should. In fact, we all are guilty of not appreciating the company of the Lord's people as much as we ought. But finding real value in being in the company of the Lord's people. The cross of Christ did not bring you into a family for no reason, beloved. Beloved. Isolation is the territory and tactic of the enemy. That's what he uses. It's his grounds to isolate. You see it in its greatest expressions with the demoniac of Gadara. The devil has so consumed that man's life, he has no friends. He is driven out into the middle of nowhere, living in caves, cutting himself with stones, naked without any sense of joy in this life at all. That's the ultimate goal of the devil. Isolation. When the Lord delivers him, go home and tell thy friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. In other words, spread that news around and you'll have people, you'll have your own people there to rejoice in what has been done. The Lord Jesus calls us into a flock. He places us into a body. He adopts us into a family. We must make sure that we make friends with God's children and find joy, joy in what the Lord is doing in their lives and praying continually for their growth and furtherance and the blessing of God upon them. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. It may be that you're here this morning and something has struck a chord in your heart. and You may need further clarity or some help spiritually. If you need to talk with me, please feel free to come to the door where I will be standing and just indicate, just let me know you need to talk. I'll be happy to take the time to open the Word of God and talk with you and pray with you. Lord, we are so thankful for what Thou has done in our lives. Let us never forget that at one time we were enemies of God, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, to the promises. We had no hope. Being without God in the world. But God. Who is rich in mercy. So rich in mercy. We're so thankful that we've been quickened. Made alive into Christ. And it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to Thy mercy, Thou saved us. Help us then to live in light of this. We pray that the gospel will always bring joy to our hearts. Help us to not be so carnal. Help me, Lord. Help me to always delight in the gospel. What a sad thing for there to be a preacher who has little joy in the gospel. Fill me with joy, superabounding Holy Spirit given joy in the gospel of Christ. Let that be the case for all thy people. The joy of the gospel. The joy of sins forgiven. The joy seeing God work in the lives of others. And drawing sinners to himself and helping his people and causing them to progress and preserving them in holiness and blessing their lives beyond what they deserve. Help us to be generous with our joy and love toward others. and Grant even to learn what Job learned. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Help us, Lord, to have that kind of heart. Bless us then today. Be with us in our fellowship then as we part from this place and go home be with us in our homes and bring us back here again this evening to pray to worship to hear the word and to profit from being amongst the people of god in the presence of god now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.